0: Funny how? I mean funny like I'm a clown and I amuse you?
1: Welcome to Silver Screen Video. My name is Jacob. I'm here with my co-host, Jonathan. What's up, John?
0: Not much, Jacob. I am excited about this episode. Hell yeah. We, uh,
1: well, I need to tell you a little story about how this episode came about. We were searching for episode topics, and uh, Criterion Collection has a really interesting series uh, called the Eclipse Series. And so I said, John, why don't we do one of these Eclipse Series? And he said... What, well, you, go ahead. What did you say?
0: I said, that's a stupid idea, and I don't want to do it. <laughs> um, <laughs> no, I said, hey, that's a cool idea. Early work from directors and stuff sounds good. And uh, I saw this one guy in particular I'd never heard of, which is uh, shame upon my house, because I should have. And um, anyway, his the first couple of his movies looked interesting. One was a Western. So I was like, hey, let's do this Sam Fuller guy. Because I noticed when I am a Western, it looks like it could be pretty fun.
1: Yeah. So lo and behold, I, in a separate timeline, I uh, reached out to uh, the one and only Nick Pinkerton, uh, who is a very good film critic and writer. And uh, uh, he said that he would be interested in being on our podcast. So we were very excited. And then... As I was looking up those uh, Sam Fuller collection on the the, the Eclipse collection, I noticed that uh, the one and only Nick Pinkerton had written the essay uh, for that collection that accompanies uh, the DVDs. And so there you go. We had our first topic uh, for our illustrious guest, Nick Pinkerton, uh, the films of the one and only Samuel Fuller. Uh, And so we had Nick Pinkerton on. We talk Samuel Fuller. Uh, folks, just a little peek behind the curtain. We're recording this after we recorded the episode. Let me tell you, you guys are in for a treat. This motherfucker, Nick Pinkerton, he goes off. I'm talking he knows stories. He knows background information. He brings so much insight and uh, so many so many different critical perspectives to the films of Sam Fuller. You guys are in for a fucking treat. I'm telling you that right now.
0: Absolutely. It was a great interview, and Nick just goes on a, in great detail about Samuel Fuller, a handful of movies we discuss. We watched a ton of his movies in preparation for this, and it was uh, it was a lot of fun. Now we're going to put in the show notes where you can find Nick. Uh but I think the most recent thing would be his Substack. Is that correct? Like that's the one that he's he's on uh predominantly right now?
1: Yeah, Employee Picks. I get the name of it wrong in the episode, all right? Don't don't I want to hear your little comments about how I got it wrong. I got it wrong. I said employees only. It's not employees only, it's employees picks. Just Google Nick Pinkerton Substack and you'll find it.
0: And also, I don't appreciate that jab if it was at me, because when I was editing this episode, I tried to edit around that to make it sound like you didn't get the podcast wrong by the (laughs) name of his, uh, the name of his Substack wrong. Were you successful?
1: Did you successfully make me look smarter?
0: No, it was significantly, uh, harder than I thought it would be because there's not a break anywhere. So the world will now know that you got the name of it wrong, but I will say, had I been able to edit it out and you draw attention to it in this little segment, um, I wouldn't have let you know. So the world would know anyway. Um, uh, okay. that's fair. So either way, also quick note guys, there is, there was a couple of, uh, dropouts during the episode. I think I was able to get it to where it's not really noticeable, but if you do notice that's, it is what it is, you know, we're all recording remotely COVID different locations, whatever, whatever. So, um, there are a couple of those, but, it did not interrupt. The interview, Nick, was still great. Still came with a lot of great shit. Yeah, we hope you guys are excited to listen to uh, the great movie critic, Nick Pinkerton. And uh, we were excited to uh, to have him on. So do you have anything to add before we roll into this episode?
1: Uh, no, I, just, I, I do just want to say if you have um, any issues with the audio quality, you know, this is a free product, but we still really want to you know be do our best with the audio quality. So if you have any issues with the audio quality, Um, be sure to be specific, write a little note about it, tie the note to a rock and throw it in the bottom of the fucking ocean because the podcast is free. Enjoy. Folks, our guest this week is a brilliant critic and writer whose work you can find in film comment, reverse shot, art forum, sight and sound, and uh, nestled up next to the Criterion Collection Blu-ray editions of Police Story and Anatomy of a Murder. Uh, He's a great follow on Twitter. Please welcome to the Silver Screen video, Mr. Nick Pinkerton. How's it going, Nick? Pretty good. What's up, guys? Not much, man. You just got back from uh Belgium. Am I right? I saw on your uh on your latest post on your Substack that you were teaching a young critics workshop at a film festival there. How was that? How did that go?
2: That went very wonderfully. This is now the sixth edition, so five years running, that I've done this same workshop in Ghent attached to the film festival there. And for reasons that should be very obvious it seemed a little uncertain as to if i was going to be able to make landfall in continental europe this year but by dispensation of the belgian consulate and nyc i managed to weasel my way in (laughs) and even though basically within days of my getting boots on the ground uh Belgium was beginning a second shutdown connected to a coronavirus spike. The festival went on even as like restaurants and bars shut down and the curfew was laid into place. And improbably enough, we managed to pull this thing off and I think it remained a worthwhile experience for everybody involved. At least it was worthwhile for me and always is.
1: Yeah. What's that? um, Cause I've taken, uh sort of a few cultural criticisms class just in in grad school, and it always kind of devolves into uh at least in my experience, everybody just kind of like um regurgitating like uh think piece you know kind of content uh you know why the office is i don't know misogyny you know that kind of thing mm-hmm. so i'm I'm wondering how how do you face that kind of challenge of, you know, the diminishing uh, quality of criticism and also the uh, diminishing career prospects uh, of, of criticism? How do you navigate that and not have your students kind of lose hope, I guess?
2: Yeah. I mean, the thing is, as I said, I mean, this is now five years that I've been doing it and, you know, in 2015, Already, the writing was very much on the wall. So very much the like idea has never been, we're going to turn out every year, five young men and women who are going to go on to full-time careers and staff jobs in sure. cultural criticism. Right. That wasn't realistic five years ago. It's bordering on completely absurd now. Um, but we're always... Predicating everything we're doing by, you know, yes, this is probably not going to be your livelihood. It may be something you, you know, supplement income with if you so choose. It may be something you continue to do totally untethered to uh, monetization. But we're all here with the assumption and the understanding that criticism is a worthwhile activity. Whether or not it earns you a red cent, that it is a way, if nothing else, to articulate things for yourself to better understand your relationship with the films that you care about, in this case, because we are film criticism oriented, and that it is a validating and worthwhile activity whether or not it's going to do any good for your bank account. And, you know, certainly we talk about nuts and bolts stuff, and certainly uh, in, at one time or another, you know, the you know, certain just very practical uh, questions about how to proceed do come up, but it would be completely beyond absurd to act as though this was any kind of uh, boom industry, and we don't, we don't put that face on it for a second. Right
1: well speaking of monetization um I, I wanted to bring up your your sub stack that you have had going for uh since the spring i believe right um yeah 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 it's called employees only and um
2: employee you talk picks,
1: about... employee picks. Employee oh, sorry say that again employee picks, employee video picks. how did i get that wrong yeah. employee picks right um, but you talk a little bit about it in your most recent post about how it's going pretty well. And you, um, can you talk a little bit about that, how it's, how it's been kind of alternately fulfilling and, uh, you know, during this whole, you know, like you said, the, the death knell of maybe, uh, paid art critics moving forward.
2: Well, the, you know, death knell, I would not say, but the prospects <laughs> Never particularly uh, great, have grown, you know, pretty thin on the vine. Right. Um, and, you know, this, this, this thing, this sort of direct-to-reader petitioning is something I thought about for a long time but been kind of loath to do because it's a little embarrassing to, you know, go out with hat in hand uh, and it's it, it, it as somebody who's accustomed to uh, you know drawing pay from various mastheads, having that buffer between yourself and uh, people who are interested in what you do is a little comforting um, because you don't uh, you don't have to involve them in the economics. You have an editor to bother, or you have a payroll person to bother. And I had a lot of compunctions about that. But, you know, among other things, certainly finally taking the plunge coincided with the shutdown and everything related to the shutdown in a very real sense that a lot of steady gigs were going to be either indefinitely on a hiatus or just gone period full stop and you know, if i was to continue continue doing the thing that i do that i had to pretty hastily rethink the way that i was doing it and yeah that's that that i suppose is the impetus i don't know that i'd go so far as to say pretty well but i'm very surprised and above that uh, touched at how many people with no real thing to gain, uh, because you know, everything is free to read, have voluntarily ponied up in order to you know, keep my uh, keep my little show uh, afloat.
1: Right. And, you know, let's talk about that because that's, that's something you talk about in your latest post as well. And, you know, when we, when we started this podcast and John, you can jump in here and kind of second this, um, I think, you know, we kind of, um, I mean, we wanted to do it just for fun, obviously, because we just mm-hmm. like talking about movies and, um, and we've gained, you know, a small, but kind of dedicated following just over the past year. But you know, something that you said that was really interesting to me is that like the the institutions, you know, that um that uh like are kind of the last bastions of like, you know, a, a cinephilia in the United States are really like this pandemic has been almost like an excuse for them to just shudder completely. You know, I mean, I'm thinking about publications like Film and Sight and Sound, but also you know, theaters, film forum, film at Lincoln center, you know, these places like, uh, I don't know. It really seems like we're entering kind of like, uh, an end times, uh, you know, and, and speaking for myself, I, I, I lived in the hinterlands, you know, until just like three years ago. And there's in most, you know, places, there is no, the modicum of cinema culture. And then I moved here and I was like, wow, this is incredible. You know, all these repertory screenings and so on and so forth. And then, of course, a couple of years later, you know, this happens and who knows what the future looks like. But uh, yeah, I don't know, John, can you jump in here? What do you, uh, what does it feel like elsewhere? Does it feel like the kind of cinema culture exists or doesn't exist? You know, uh, what does it feel like in, in, in Florida, like right now regarding like going to the movie theater and stuff?
0: It's, it's pretty much non-existent. And I mean, I'll even take it further and say, you know, I just moved from Washington state, A few months ago after living there for about six years in Seattle and then surrounding cities. And and honestly, like I was I was kind of taken aback by the state of cinema culture before the pandemic in terms of what people wanted to see in theaters. And I would go watch these classic movies, uh, you know, Lawrence of Arabia. I got the opportunity to see in the movie theater and it was really cool and there would be a handful of people in there. But yet when the pandemic hit and movie theaters were started reeling, obviously. and and over the last few months they've started to reopen with AMC and Regal. I know Regal most recently closed again. when they had the opportunity to show maybe some older movies to get people back in there, regardless of whether they would show up or not, they would just put the same films that maybe came out in the last few years, either retreading over Marvel movies or retreading over old Star Wars movies. and there's nothing wrong with that. But it's like I was kind of hoping for an opportunity to see older films in the theater because what else do they have to do right now? So it almost like there's just like direct opposition towards like showing anything. It's almost treated as a remnant. Yeah, it's kind of –
1: I don't know. It's kind of (laughs) – when we started the podcast, we kind of talked about it. You know, like uh, cinema is like a 20th century phenomenon, I feel like. And it's like – yeah, And when I say cinema, I guess I mean going into a room full of strangers, you know, and having that kind of communal space. And you talk about it a little bit in your piece about, you know, um, having some kind of community. You run into people on the street, you know, it's you're out of your house. You're not beholden to like whatever your family is watching on TV, et cetera, et cetera. How that um, doesn't exist very many places in the U.S. And now it seems like it's going away entirely,
2: you know. Well, I mean, cinema for the first, let's say, half century of its existence, when you referred to cinema, you referred to two things. You referred to an art form and you referred to the physical place where that art form was encountered. And that untethering of the art form and the place has been underway for something like 70 years now, really beginning with television, which... You know, of course, is the medium that first poses a real viable threat to cinema and to you know, cinema the physical place sure and you know this has been proceeding a pace for some time, and I mean among the other things that I blather on about in the piece is the streaming services and the degree to which they have asserted themselves as a prominent if not dominant cultural force in the space of a very short time and all of the compunctions i have about that all of the compunctions i have about uh silicon valley and platform capitalism as arbiters of taste and uh keepers of the flame of film culture, but also you can't really fault the basic premise that the Reed Hastings of Netflix and so on have when they make the case for the streaming service as the natural uh, inheritor of the mantle of the you know role that cinema cinemas as exhibitors have classically played and the basic premise is that the system is broken that the system is moribund that the system has not changed at all decades upon decades and that you need these new more dynamic streaming services in order to better uh, service people's wants and needs Um, the latter part of that I protest to full-throatedly But the basic premise that distribution and exhibition, as they've functioned, let's say in the 21st century, are extremely broken, I can't fault that at all. And you can point to a handful of places that are outliers, New York, Los Angeles, Chicago... A handful of other in North America, particularly culture rich cities. But that is, you know, again, it's an outlier. And the experience of most people and the opportunities that most people have for cinema going in most of the rest of the United States, not to speak the world, are fairly paltry. In most cases, limited to a multiplex. In some cases, an art house, which will have pretty mingy offerings. At best, the occasional A24 release. And that's not a high bar, particularly. (laughs) So, you know, what we we see in the present crisis is, in sharp contrast, uh, the degree to which this thing that has already been hanging on by a thread in some cases is now imminently imperiled. And not only does one pray for things to pull through and for what we had to continue to exist, it also becomes an occasion for asking how things can be done better.
1: Right. Yeah. I, um, it makes me think of, I remember on the 10th anniversary of nine eleven uh, in the New Yorker, they did this, you know, I don't know who wrote it. It might, it's probably David Dobrik or Tubin or somebody, I don't know, but they basically were making the point that I think is true, which is things were bad, you know, polarization, mm-hmm. et cetera. And nine just made them worse, you know, mm-hmm. uh, and in some cases, the very institutions like the New Yorker, you know, made them worse. Um, but it, that's what I think about when I think about um, this pandemic, you know, cause you bring up the point and this is something we've talked about a lot on the, on the podcast is like, you know, back in the nineties, you know, it's, it's not like the nineties were some, some golden age or whatever, but I, I feel like there was room for the kind of middle brow, you know, cinema. Whereas like today, if you go to a multiplex, it's like most of the screens are taken up by the big release of the weekend with a couple of big releases that, Premiered two weeks ago, and that's really about it, you know. Like we, we, we watched Blue Steel because we did an episode on Catherine Bigelow, and I was, we were talking about like, remember when like there was just a genre of movies that was like just women in danger of like, y- y- you know, like well, that, w- that was that was like, you used to be able to go to a movie theater and just see one of those in like nineteen ninety six and forget instantly about it the second you left, but but you know now that even that variety is gone.
2: You know, I mean, absolutely. And uh, the big story of now about a month ago was AMC Theaters going dark because of the announced delay of the release of the new Bond picture. Right, right. And you know, what is this illustrative of not, the if not the fact that the that these theaters are so dependent on a relatively small handful of enormous tentpole releases that the withdrawal of these tentpoles brings the entire architecture crashing down. And, you know, this is very much a development of the last 10 to 15 years, this moving away from what was classically the sort of received wisdom of how you put together uh, a release slate as a studio is that you'd spread a lot of money around on a lot of disparate projects, middle range projects, the occasional star vehicle, the occasional blockbuster, and you'd hope that a couple of these really connected and you could then afford to lose money on several others. And you'd. Come away in the black, having made a, a modest profit. And what has replaced that wisdom is the logic of the ever larger tent pole where you're not putting in thirty million with hopes of making seventy million or a hundred million.
0: You dropped out, and when you were right in the middle of talking about the uh, the profit that they would make.
2: Okay, gotcha.
0: Um, yeah.
2: Hmm. Okay. Let me see if I can rewind myself a little bit.
0: If not, I have a question for you that that I kind of um, – when I was reading your most recent piece um, and you talked about streaming and, and we've obviously touched on Netflix and Reed Hastings already. Yeah. I find myself, uh, Jacob and I have talked about this on the podcast. And and I think actually today, Jacob named it the Irishman. What, would you, what did you call it, Jacob? The Irishman.
1: It's the Irishman paradox, I think. Yeah.
0: So like my favorite filmmaker is Martin Scorsese. And the fact that he had to go hat in hand to like Netflix to get a movie made kind of bothers me. But Netflix was there to help him. Now, thankfully, a theater near me was playing the Irishman for the two-day window it was in theater. So I was able to watch a new Scorsese film in theater as opposed to in my living room. And while I am glad that Netflix was there, like they're still, they still present a very real issue. And, and especially considering that they view movie theaters as direct competition. Like how do you, how do you feel about that? I I, I, I got your somewhat, some of your thoughts through that piece you wrote, but like in terms of creators being able to have this new avenue to create and Netflix giving them budgets and room to roam. Like, what are your thoughts on that?
2: Well, first and foremost, putting together budget for a movie, just about any movie is an enviable task to take on. And, far be it from me to think ill of anybody who, if they see that big bag of Netflix money or Amazon money or whatever money lying on the table to take it, to get the thing done, of course you're going to do that. Um, And am I glad that the Irishman exists in the world? Yes, very much so. And this is all facilitated by the existence of Netflix. Now, at one and the same time, I have a certain amount of esteem and trust in the motivations of a Martin Scorsese in making that picture. I don't extend the same goodwill and good faith towards a Netflix, because, as you mentioned, Netflix kind of earned itself a little bit of bad press a few years back, precisely because they were pitching themselves as not only a option alongside the theater, but we're very much talking a big game about, you know, movie theaters are the competition. We're gunning for them. And because of this, because of not having the much more amiable uh, kind of presentation that Amazon studios, for example, had, there was a perception that Netflix had gotten something of a cinephile problem or a uh, problem, with the, problem with the serious about movies, folks. And they've worked very hard to compensate for that and repair that over the last few years. They've spent a fair amount of money in order to um, make, make better that uh, little breach. But the point I make in the piece is this, is you have to, in imagining what happens in a world where the streaming giants reign reign supreme, where a Netflix reign supreme, you have to, in imagining how they'll act once they have the market share that they're in the hunt for, you have to look at how they've behaved in the past. And Netflix, as we first came to know it, was a mail order system dealing in physical media, whose competition at that point were the still extant video stores. And within a fairly short space of time, they had driven those video stores out of existence. Having done that, That business model, the direct delivery of physical media, ceased to be a priority and was put on the back burner so that they could concentrate on developing a streaming video service, a streaming video service that when it first appeared, or at least after uh, a few stumbling early steps, was welcome as this fantastic, wide-ranging video library that would give a subscriber potentially access to, if not the entire breadth and depth of world cinema history, then a reasonable amount of it. There used to be quite a bit of stuff on Netflix. Then there's a third pivot away from licensing other titles and into producing their own original content. So in every case, there's been kind of a bait and switch that has gone on in which the service has built its subscriber base, offering one thing, then pivoted and given another thing. So as appreciative as I am for the completion of Orson Welles' The Other Side of the Wind or for The Irishman or for the occasional good works that have been committed with Netflix money, I have less than zero confidence that that is part of the mission. The mission is always building subscriber base in so doing driving out competition and then offering something entirely different from what was initially on offer.
0: Yeah, that's a really good way to put it. Cause uh, it, it is interesting when you look at the history of Netflix, because I remember early on, with Netflix, um, I had a bone to pick with them simply because I was such a lover of Blockbuster. Uh, I would just go in Blockbusters and spend hours in there just looking around. And because of Blockbuster offering, like, you know, they always had like an independent section and an art section. So you could go there and kind of broaden your your view of, of film, um, one movie at a time, because obviously we all start somewhere. So when Netflix came along, it would just, it just became the killer of that kind of experience. And I think the pandemic has, has obviously accelerated what's happening with movie theaters. But I mean, as we just discussed a few minutes ago, it it seems like it was already happening before the pandemic. Um, But that it looks like streaming services in general combined with the pandemic are about to uh, unfortunately probably take out another major part of the cinema experience with movie theaters. So it all just feels kind of daunting. It's, 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 I try to be optimistic with it, but I just—it's hard to find those optimistic avenues, if that makes sense.
2: Well, oh, I mean, I—I I, I don't think that a dire threat is posed to the cinema as physical place. The concept of cinema as physical place—it's possible that the multiplex as we've known it is in some danger. It's possible that a number of institutions um that for example we in new york have enjoyed are in danger and certainly in other places but i don't think you know i don't think that communal congregation to watch moving image based works is going anywhere um however it may be that there is a big shake up and restructuring soon to be underway and that could be if you want it to be cause for optimism because as we've discussed we were in a far from perfect situation previously um but i do think the market share that is most like imminently threatened uh by the streaming services is that of the you know of the multiplex um, much more so than other leaner operations
0: yeah um the you said something you wanted to say you can jump in
1: oh i i just wanted to uh you know nick not to not to make you listen to your own work but uh just a quote i love from that piece uh that you talk about so while america's theaters uh, sorry uh so while america's closed theaters slumber let us dream with them a little dream about a more unruly and democratic and living cinema a cinema without board members and managerial mediocrities than to let those dreams inspire the great work that will come upon waking. And I love that just because like, you know, sometimes you just gotta, you you just gotta, you just gotta be optimistic. You know what I mean? You gotta be like, well, you know, it's, it's not going anywhere I think, you know? And uh, so, yeah, I mean, speaking of that great work, I think we could probably transition into um, talking about Sam Fuller. Um,
0: Uh, Well, before we...
2: if If I just say something to that, actually? Of course, yeah. Because sometime back for Film Comment, I had occasion to do a piece about the culture of university film societies in the 1940s, 50s, and 60s. And part of the attraction of this is... They're representative of a period in film culture where there is very little in the way of institutional oversight or institutional interest in cinephilia. Colleges in the main are not offering cinema studies programs. Um, There are not any of the, or very few of the institutional the institutional bodies in place, or if they are in place they're uh, in their very early years. And so much of the activity around film is amateur in the best sense of the word, which is to say, driven by love. And moreover, you have, by virtue of this phenomenon of the you know, university film society, you have activity in, if not every city of any size in the United States, You have a just much more variegated field of film culture that is not just stuck in a handful of extremely large cities or extremely culture-rich cities, but is rather all over the place. And I tend to be a little uh, nostalgic is not the word, having not experienced it firsthand, but I tend to find that a very attractive model and something that can function, I think, as a usable past. Not that I think for a second that we're going to revert to the high heady days of 1966, where every community college has a film society running 16 millimeter prints. But I do think it offers some kind of, if not model, then loose inspiration for a more decentralized and a more kind of rough and ready and again amateur way of approaching things and I know very well that in 2020 you cannot relive the uh, film culture of 50 years previous but What I do hope comes of this is that we start thinking of ways to operate outside of these institutional um, structures that really did take over at a certain point from all of this, um, uh, all of these amateur, amateur undertakings, which were you know the pick and spade work of which was done purely for love of the game and eventually uh all of these institutional bodies came to uh came to take over somewhat and then the question arises well you know is it necessary are these institutional bodies necessary if this thing that was built up initially through just amateur fervor was able to exist through amateur fervor for so long and if there is this sense of massive institutional delegitimization, can this kind of scrappy, for the love of the game, DIY activity find a way to fill in the many gaps that exist in a highly faulty system of distribution and exhibition? Can these kind of small... And small improvised sort of actions somehow uh, somehow make up, or I can't, I won't say take over because that's impossible, but somehow uh, help to repair a horribly breached and foundering film culture you know it, it's interesting
1: um that you bring that up because that i feel like I, I have two things that i think maybe can tie that into a bow i um there's this wonderful essay by uh, philip lopate mm-hmm. that is called Ant- anticipation of lenate do you know this work
2: yeah i do i do
1: yeah yeah it's it's a great essay about uh, about exactly what you're talking about you know that that kind of um you know film culture in the um in the fifties and sixties and stuff. And um, I actually was fortunate enough to be able to um, take a class with him. Mm -hmm. And I, uh, I worked on a piece, which, you know, may be forthcoming in the criterion blog, but I mean, who knows? Uh, But uh, I worked on a piece that kind of contrasted, um, you know, me basically reading that essay of his and just being, you know insanely jealous and just mm. kind of being furious that I couldn't you know be like walking the streets of Morningside Heights in you know 1960 you know in 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 raptures over Jules and Jim or whatever and um I uh so I contrasted that with my own and and writing you know the P, writing the essay that I was writing kind of forced me to realize that I actually did have elements of that in my own life and one of them is the namesake uh, for this podcast. There was a there was a, a movie theater in Pensacola called Silver Screen Cinema, mm-hmm. and it was uh, it was just I mean the stickiest floor imaginable. It didn't even have real um, it, it didn't even have real theater seating. John, you described it as like uh, it was like a like a beer hall with just a bunch of seats and tables, and then a screen at one end. You
0: know. Oh, yeah. It was really just a long hallway with a constantly uh, sticky floor.
1: (laughs) Yeah, it was. And they would show midnight movies on Friday and Saturday. And we just did a bunch of, you know, a bunch of stuff for October, you know, horror movies. And like, I feel like 90 percent of all these like 80s and 90s horror movies and stuff that I had seen was from just going going to this theater. And it was like it wasn't perfect. I mean, essentially, we were watching like DVDs, like, you know, in a room full of people and. Uh, You know, people would come there after they were drinking all night and, you know, people were loud and it was it was put on by these kind of corny guys who would dress up in like Halloween costumes every week and, you know, the devil and the ghost. And they had I think they had a public access show on Blab TV and and it was all very corny, but it was also like like uh, kind of like made me think about like, yeah, you know, what's maybe some shit like that needs to exist. You know what I mean? Like those, that, that little, uh, things like that are, I think cause for hope in the sense that like, like you said, it's not going anywhere. There are still going to be people who want to gather together in a room, you know, and act up and watch movies, you know?
2: Um, Yeah. I, I mean, to your point, you don't have to go back to... Philip Lopate's youth, in order to see this kind of activity and this kind of ferment, I, you know, I, I will be turning forty uh, in about a week's time, and in my own lifespan, I can remember these things being available and disappearing. So many of them, I can remember going to screenings by the Cincinnati Film Society of 16 millimeter prints of Warhol movies and Bruce Connor movies um, in the basement of the former Natural History Museum. There was an operational seven day a week repertory cinema in my hometown of Cincinnati. The movies uh, or real movies on Race Street when I went to see my mother in greater Washington, D.C., I would go into Georgetown. There were two rep cinemas, The Key, The Biograph. I was talking to my good buddy Jeff Cashvan, who grew up in Norfolk, Virginia. He was telling me about the Narrow there, which is still operational, uh, which in his youth was you know, a rep joint. It's not ancient history, this stuff. And in many cases, the ties haven't totally been severed and beyond that you have the function served in so many cities by video stores as these you know brick and mortar meeting places for various you know film freaks and these of course are very nearly gone the way of the dodo all of which is only to say you don't have to look into ancient history to see a american film culture that is maybe a little more vibrant, maybe a little less centralized, maybe a little less dependent on institutional validation. And there's of course a myriad of reasons that we are where we are now, but we we haven't arrived, I think, at an inevitable point. And even well before this, I've seen a lot of signs for hope, a lot of jerry-rigged micro-cinema operations um, in a lot of places that one would not think of as being film culture-rich towns, a lot of places that did have at one point or another uh, more opportunities that are rediscovering links to that now disappeared film culture and trying to get things going again so strange as it may seem because everything is so unremittingly grim I you know I I do hold on to these few uh, glimmers of hope and the idea that having been able to achieve uh, certain things in the past that we are not condemned to a future of just being doused by whatever a handful of streaming giants uh choose to give us for our content gruel of the day.
1: <laughs> right, absolutely. Um well yeah this uh that, that seems like a good note um to maybe end it on. John, you think we should move on to Sam Fuller or you got anything else on this uh uh Cineculture Apocalypse?
0: I have Something that is separate from that. It's just a quick question that I had. Uh, I wanted to ask earlier, Nick. I, I've read quite a few of your pieces um, and like what you wrote on the Criterion about Sam Fuller and all that. And and you approach uh, talking about film in such a thoughtful manner. Um, and then obviously you reference in your most recent piece on Substack talking about breaking your longest streak of not going to the movie theaters. You know, when you harkened back to 1983 when you went and saw the re release of Snow White and the Seven Dwarves. Is there a particular movie or a particular moment? And I'm sure you've been asked this before. I just, I didn't come across it with anything I read that really made you think, I, I want to do, I want to be a film critic. I want to study this art form uh, and kind of let the world know my views on it.
2: I I I, I certainly never set out to do precisely what I'm doing. Um, I was a pretty pretty studious, uh, and pretty ardent film watcher from, I don't know, the time I was probably 12 or 13 onwards. Um, and initially went to school for film production with the idea that, uh, I would, uh, launch myself into, into, uh, Autourdom, um, with a very, with very little grip of the... Uh, practical prospects for doing such a thing and the practical prospects for a number of reasons were kind of nil um, so I kind of just backed my way into then writing about films which is something i had been doing for um, doing for my own edification and through a st- uh, through a process which I still don't entirely understand, uh, doing this for fun and pleasure gradually became an occupation. But you know, as to if there was any moment in which uh, everything crystallized for me, I, I certainly don't think so. I mean, there were definitely some uh, hugely illuminating early film-going experiences, but uh, nothing where I was struck by a bolt out of the blue and thinking that I had to devote my life to the practice of criticism.
0: Okay. That's cool. Yeah. I was just curious just because, yeah, especially since you, you referenced, uh, you know, the snow white and the seven dwarves and your longest streak of not going to the movie theaters and all that. So I just thought I was, I was a little curious. So no, that's cool. Um, yeah, we can move on to Sam Fuller if y'all are ready to do that. Let's do it. All right. So,
1: yeah, so we can, uh, we'll start talking about uh, our topic, our director of the week, which is, uh, Uh, The one and only Samuel Fuller. Um, I had been kind of woefully underwatched. I think both of us had, John, both me and you. Yeah, absolutely. I had seen uh, The Naked Kiss and Shock Corridor, uh, but Mm -hmm. not really much else. And, um, you know, speaking about our conversation earlier, a lot of his stuff just is not easily available on streaming services, even to like to rent on Amazon or anything uh so so yeah nick if you don't mind you talk a little bit about sam fuller and um i don't know maybe some of your favorite movies of his or or thoughts on his career as a whole because he's he's a wild man he's he's certainly got a got a wild career
2: well i don't recall where i first came to fuller and i think i'd seen at least a couple of the big titles, probably the Naked Kiss and Shock Corridor when I was still in high school. But then when I um, got to university, I went to a place called Wright State University outside of Dayton, Ohio. And um, a class on Sam Fuller was offered. Um, And professor of that class, a, a wonderful educator by the name of William Lafferty, opened the class by reading from two reviews of Sam Fuller's work. And I don't recall exactly what the reviews were, but one was from a left-wing publication essentially accusing Fuller of being a full-blown fascist. It may have been the review of the Steel Helmet and the Daily Worker. I'm not sure. The other was from a right-wing publication, basically accusing Fuller of being a full-blown red commie bastard. (laughs) And I thought, what a wonderful way to introduce this body of work At the time, of course, I didn't know how appropriate it was, but I just loved the idea of somebody who could manage to arouse such passions on both sides of the aisle, who could somehow make films that made everyone feel that uh, he was against them. And this incongruity... To use a phrase that Luke Millay uses in writing about Fuller, this incongruity and this attack on multiple fronts that Fuller offers was immediately extremely appealing to me. I think around this age, I was completely enamored of, as I continue to be, uh, Rainer Werner Fossbender. Fossbender who is a Fuller admirer, and uh, indeed had hoped to play a part in the movie that Fuller made in West Germany, with, uh, "Dead Pigeon on Beethoven Street," and I, you know, I loved precisely this about Fassbender: just the ability to get up everybody's ass, the ability to uh, make enemies wherever he went, and something of the same, uh, just. Agro energy that radiated off of Fuller was enormously attractive to me. Um, yeah, and, it, and, and uh, oh, go I'm ahead. sorry, go ahead. And just the sort of disparate and paradoxical aspects that make up Fuller are for me just continually extremely enriching and fascinating. The fact that you can have a filmmaker who is at one and the same time, so didactic at times, um, but also so easily misunderstood. Somebody who has this sort of sledgehammering quality to a great deal of the work. Um, the tonal inconsistencies, the contradictions and style and ideology, all of these things, if you are somebody who values perhaps uh, vigorous inconstancy over seamless, um, well-made craftsmanship. Uh, the open-endedness of Fuller—it's just you know a, a gift that keeps on giving.
0: Yeah, it's it's funny because I I haven't like Samuel Fuller was a huge blind spot for me. So when Jacob suggested we do like the Eclipse series from the Criterion, and we'd pick a director. I automatically wanted to do him because I love westerns. And um, his first three, one of them was a Western and one of them was kind of a Western, uh, the Baron of Arizona. So um, it's it's uh, it was just an interesting uh, three movies uh, when you when you roll in. I forgot the other. I believe it was a still still helmet. Um, But the the first line from the piece you wrote, I, I read it before I even watched any of his movies. Well, actually, the entire first paragraph was just so full of information in terms of. I cannot believe I have never seen a movie from this guy. And how do I not worship this guy? Like instead of calling action, he fires a 45, a Colt 45 in the air like that in and of itself, like picturing Sam Fuller sitting on set with a gun in his hand and a cigar in his mouth, pulling the trigger before uh, the, the scene goes. It's, 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 fucking magical. It sounds magical.
2: I mean, Fuller is such a character and has such a rich backstory. I believe he directs his first film at age 36, and by that point has had many lifetimes already, both uh, as a teenage uh, homicide reporter for the proto-tabloid New York Evening Graphic, as a pulp fiction writer, as a U.S. Army infantryman with the 16th infantry regiment first infantry division um he's such a character and such a hambone as well such a self-invented eccentric that it's easy to be attracted to that and that's you know very much like part of the package and in the you know in the course of writing about uh those uh first three films you are sort of like building up the personality and the, uh, you know, building up your hero, which is in this case, the, uh, indomitable director. Um, but the films themselves are as fascinating as the man is, uh, I think even more so. Um, so just to be, just to be uh, quick about it, we're talking about the first three films that were all done for this, Uh, Operation uh, Robert Lippert Films. Uh, Lippert, uh, a theater chain operator who had several West Coast and I think Bible Belt cinemas who decided to uh, go the way of making his own content and built up a little uh, Poverty Row operation. And Fuller, who had been writing Pulp's and who had been contributing screenplays uh, around Hollywood since about 1936, came to Lippert with a script for a film called I Shot Jesse James, and offered to direct as well as sell the script to Lippert uh, for a song, and this is how he makes his debut film um, in 1949 at, I believe, age 36. And as you mentioned, it's a Western, but it's a weird Western. Uh, Among other things, like all of these Lippert films, it's a very cheap shoestring operation. It has none of the scenic inducements that you would generally expect of a Western. Uh, The central character is not Jesse James, but his assassin, Bob Ford, played by John Ireland. And the assassination is over and done with around the midway point of the film. Among other things, you get a pretty distinct homoerotic subtext in the relationship between Ford and James. There's a rather eyebrow-raising bathtub scene. Um, the, yeah, in the back takes on a sort of rear penetration, uh, quality. Um, and you know, as in so much of Fuller, the like psychosexual subtext isn't even text, Uh, you know, it's not subtext, it's just text. And another Fuller, Fuller trademark, let's say that maybe out of necessity Is already evident here is a predilection for close-ups. It's a very sweaty, claustrophobic movie. You spend a lot of time in the harried and persecuted mind of John Ireland's Ford, who after he betrays his best friend, shoots him in the back, best friend perhaps more than best friend, shoots him in the back, is doomed to travel around reenacting his famous feat on stage uh, persecuted by saloon balladeers as a dirty little coward you have already here something that's going to recur through fuller this concept of history as theater um i believe godard uh, said something to the effect of uh, the film is possessed of a uh, oppressive intensity not seen since Dreyer's joan of arc again uh not this sort of plain air openness that one is accustomed to from uh so many westerns of the period but this sort of sweltering close thumb screw quality that the movie has and again a lot of this is probably just a matter of uh a matter of necessity shooting quick and on the cheap and not having the ability to Travel uh, far afield. So, what can you uh, shoot easily and uh, without a lot of uh, cash? Well, the human face, but the close-up, the looming close-up, is going to be really throughout the uh, career very much a uh, fuller signature. He has, very yeah. Little... I uh, go ahead. Go ahead.
0: I'm sorry. You can go ahead.
2: I'm anyway, very, very little use for sort of seamless, uh, classically constructed storytelling um, in the high finish studio style. Fuller is a guy who is enormously attracted to the close-up and the figural grouping, um, but a nice medium shot, shot, shot-reverse-shot dialogue. These you'll not encounter... Uh, with nearly as much abundance as, in Fuller as you will in a typical, typical Hollywood film of the period. Yeah, and I specifically noticed
1: that in uh, in Steel Helmet, which is, I mean, speaking of claustrophobic, it's it's almost, uh, and and the the style in which it is shot is so. You know, I was reading about you know the kind of background behind Steel Helmet, and it's like, yeah, like you just like micro budget on a, on a very, very tiny set that's clearly artificial. And, uh, I don't know, it has a real, um, I don't know. There's a real contrast there between that and, you know, some larger like studio war picture, but you have a lot of kind of almost like psychological realism, um, with steel helmet, um, as opposed to, I mean, I don't know sergeant york or some of the more popular like you know big studio like war movies at the time you know
0: well it's interesting because like when you say oh man that that samuel fuller movie made me really claustrophobic and like it was so sweaty like the response would be which one Um, because all of them uh have some uh form of that like just watching the big wet red one a few days ago it's like good god like it makes me feel like i'm on the beach it makes me feel like i've got this uniform on and i'm huddled down and i don't know what's going to happen next and like just just the overall the, the way he used the close up it was just i don't know he he was uh he was just it was something else i cannot believe uh for as long as i've been watching movies that i had never came across uh samuel fuller
2: well if memory serves if not the opening shot the title shot is uh a helmet which then raises up and you see the face of gene evans right. This very like mean kind of piggy-eyed face um and this is a type that as Moulet points out in his feet piece on uh, fuller fuller really likes these cor- kind of lumpenprol uh kind of close to the ground, uh, Cro-Magnon types. And Gene Evans (laughs) is very much that, uh, Manny Farber, I think describes the characters looking like a Bruegel peasant. Um, the movie, again, uh, very much on the fly shoot, uh, shot in 10 days in Griffith park in Los Angeles, Griffith park doubling for Korea. It's shooting, i think 6 months into the united states uh action in korea and fuller very much drawing on his own still recent combat experience as mentioned he was with first infantry participated in landings in africa sicily normandy present at the liberation of falkenau concentration camp somebody who had very much been in the shit as had star Evans. the you know the story goes as told by Fuller, that Evans came into audition and Fuller from behind his desk pulled out an M1 rifle and just chucked it at him and Evans <laughs> caught it, racked it and he's like, okay, he got the job. um And it's full of little bits of business that come, in some cases directly from Fuller's own combat experience. Uh, there's a scene in which a soldier goes to retrieve uh, GI dog tags from a dead soldier is warned uh, quite extensively against doing so. And of course, when he goes to do so the corpse is booby trapped and he goes up, um, which is something that comes directly from Fuller's own experience in the field. And you also get, I think, Really, for the first time in Steel Helmet, something that is going to recur through so many fuller films is you get this really motley cacophony of perspectives. Um, You have this mixed race unit, um, including James Edwards as a black G.I., who is baited by a POW over Jim Crow racism in the states? Uh, you have uh, Richard Liu as a Japanese American GI, Buddhahead Tanaka, um, who uh, is there is a mention made by way of this character of the Japanese American internment camps, of which there had been few, if any, at this point in American films. And this jostling, motley, interracial bunch full of their very individual and often conflicting perspectives and this sense of just a, uh, as I say, cacophony of perspectives is one that you're going to like see quite a bit of in Fuller, for example, Run of the Arrow. Where you don't just have a monolithic Southern type and a monolithic Union type and a monolithic Native American type. But even within these within these groups, you have all of these sort of splinters and subsets and rivalries. And this kind of free- for all atmosphere is something that Fuller very much uh, glories in. I think,
0: yeah. yeah. It's um. I'm sorry. You
1: can go ahead, Jacob. I, I just want to um. I just want to jump uh back a little bit uh from talking about the movies because you were talking about um, you know, his experience overseas and just talking mm-hmm. about uh, you know him as a director as character, you know, and um, yeah. there's this uh th- one of the special features on that I should have looked at. I should have wrote it down what it was, but one of the special features on the criterion channel is, uh, um, one of these, uh, I think it's a French television show, um, where they're kind of like, uh, like shouting questions at him. And he's just like, they're, they're basically just wanting him to like riff on various topics, you know, which is, um, the kind of scene that I think you see in like eight and a half or maybe breathless where like, Um, you know, a a famous director will just get shouted at by different newspaper men. And, and there's a funny like parody of it in, uh, in the Tim Robbins documentary about him where like Tim Robbins is like filming him and just like saying like Democrat Republican. And, and it's very strange, but, um, but anyways, there's this in, in one of those, um, interviews, he tells this story, which I think is one of the most improbable things I've ever heard anybody say where he was in the infantry and they had Marlene Dietrich, uh, come over and perform for the troops. And that like, he, he draws out the story, but he says like, basically he weaseled his way into her dressing room. And, you know, she was like, he was like, can I, can you send a letter back home for me or whatever? And she was like, no, I can't, you know, it's, like, if I did it for you, I'd have to do it for everybody, et cetera et cetera. And I mean this is just he, this is just a random guy sneaking like a private sneaking into Marlene Dietrich's uh, dressing room. And so finally she he says, um, he says, what I want is I want you to send a message to my agent and that he had the same literary agent as Marlene Dietrich did like her like movie agent. And he wanted to like pass like a message about like cigars or something. And she was like, okay, yeah, I'll pass along the message. And it turns out she actually did. And then he tells a story about how he runs into her like, you know, 15 years later in some restaurant in Hollywood. And she recognized him and remembered who he was. And the whole time I was thinking, this sounds insane. There's no way this can be true. And then I watched uh, another special feature, which was an interview with Constance Towers, and apparently he was going around telling people that she actually shaved her head for, um, for the naked kiss. When when, and of course it wasn't, it was just a bald cap. Um, and so then when I heard her tell that story of him lying about her shaving her head, I was like, yeah, there's no way that Marlene Dietrich story is right. It's true. There's, I mean, there's just no way, right. Do you have any more, do you have any insight on well, that? Have you heard that story?
2: I mean, the, uh, the interesting thing is very often, Great storytellers tell great stories about themselves. And very often, if you're people who are tasked with with putting together director's biographies, to use this particular case, part of that task is extracting the truth from a fabricated backstory a self self mythologizing backstory uh sort of print the legend backstory you know and these can go from very small things to large things it may be bud bedeker exaggerating about his athletic record at ohio state it may be fritz long stating that he was offered uh a very high mucky muck position in the German film industry by Gerbels and as mere matter of principle turned this thing down. But what's interesting about Fuller is most of the wildest stuff is quite easily verifiable. That he was at age 17 the youngest crime reporter on the murder beat in New York City for the New York Evening Graphic is verifiably the case that uh, he was a protege of john houston's mother rhea gore a rarity is a female sports writer in the 1920s is verifiably the case and that as a relatively venerable 30-year-old, he joined the U.S. Army Infantry, and that is a pretty old dog-faced soldier and fought in most of the major fronts of North Africa and Europe during World War II. That's all true. Now that he occasionally stretched the truth a little bit, you know, I don't doubt it for a second, but the basic (laughs) facts of Fuller's biography are pretty fucking wild and when we talk about fuller as this kind of hambone performer very much uh acting up the role of the two-fisted tough guy director i don't know if this is kicking around online but it certainly must be out there somewhere I recommend people to an appearance that Fuller made I believe at the University of Edinburgh uh maybe sometime in the 1990s uh it's it's uh it's a performance uh he has a the performance is essentially Fuller presenting himself as Sam Fuller going into a studio exec's office and pitching an idea for a film the name of the film is uh, the Lusty Days, and it's set in New York City during the draft riots, the same events seen in uh, Scorsese's gang- Gangs of New York. And it's just this fantastic kind of one man show performance in which Fuller gives the entire story, the like ultimate uh, pitch uh, for his film. And if you want to sort of get a better idea of the man as performer, uh, this is, I think, the the best instance of it that i know wow yeah I'll, I'll definitely have to check that out
0: um yeah i'll have to check that out as well that sounds awesome
2: but you know did he bullshit a lot i'm I'm sure he did and i mean that's a baron of arizona um which is the other Lippert film that we haven't talked about if nothing else it sort of gives you a sense of how much fuller liked these kind of Adventurer, swindler, blackguard types. In this case, uh, James Addison Revis, played by Vincent Price. And you see that too with the Steve Brody character in Park Row in 1952, uh, being this very you know stereotypically all-American type. How can anyone uh, as American as Fuller not have a soft spot for swindlers, frauds, phonies? card sharpers, double dealers. Um and that, you know, that's very much in evidence in Baron of Arizona.
1: Yeah, John, you were a big fan. Uh, I know we we texted about it and talked quite a bit about it. I I know you liked specifically uh Baron of Arizona and Park Row quite a bit, right?
0: Yeah, Baron of Arizona was it was something else and it was just so interesting to see Vincent Price in that role because I grew up watching Vincent Price in horror movies. Like that's where I got my introduction to Edgar Allan Poe and a lot of like old Shirley Jackson stories or whatever, uh, The House on Haunted Hill, stuff like that. So it was just so cool to see him in something where it wasn't like that type. Like, uh, you know, it, it's, it was just such a, a different character for me to see him in. And uh, I really enjoyed it. I thought the story was really interesting. And uh, it's definitely one of my, one of my favorites from his early work. Uh, but Fuller's early work, I should say. I think he
1: said it was his favorite performance, right? Or one of his favorite performances, Vincent Price. Um, and I feel like you can see why, because he he really is given like full time. Like, it's really kind of a complex character. And I mean, almost doesn't quite work. I, I mean, in my opinion, I know, I mean, most people like it, but it's just uh, when I was watching it, I was like, so what is like? you don't really get a lot of insight into his character uh, it, it just seems like such an insane thing to do you know to go uh spend all that time with those monks and uh i don't know it's it's just such a strange like old wild west tall tale you know
0: well he's definitely playing the long con it it looks like um <laughs> right. and also i believe uh as i think nick pointed out in his in his uh for for the movie uh i believe that guy in real life fought on both sides of the civil war so that's also a really weird thing um so apparently he didn't have much of uh you know it seems like something he would do is what i'm saying right
1: Uh, let's talk about park row for a little bit uh nick if you don't mind that uh I found Park Row to be—I mm-hmm. I was shocked because I, I'd never—I'd I'd heard of the major Fuller movies, obviously, you know, Pick Up on South Street and um, you know Forty Guns, et cetera, et cetera. I had never even heard of Park Row, and I was blown away by how good it was. I—I it, I, I thought it was extraordinary. It was like Citizen Kane, but if Citizen Kane was like you know kind of a, a newspaper picture, it was—I thought it was incredible.
2: Well, I mean, as with Baron of Arizona, Park Row is. Park Row is evidence of Fuller's fondness for sort of digging into odd little pockets of American history. And, you know, a great deal of American historical filmmaking really dedicates itself to a pretty, you know, small number of uh, well-trod topics. You know, when we talk about the American Western, we're principally talking about films set from say 1865 to about 1885 and when we talk about newspaper picture you know we think of a lot of sort of fast talking uh, comedies of the 1930s but park row is you know something entirely different it's nearer to the raw Wa- raw walsh of uh, the bowery it's a newspaper newspaper picture but uh you know, very essential to it is the idea that uh, you know, these headlines and these circulation wars are things very much fought in the streets. The circulation wars are really wars. And it comes out same year as Fixed Bayonets, I believe, or immediately after Fixed Bayonets, which is the other Korean War film that Fuller made, now having hopped over to Fox. Steel Helmet Again, a very fly by night production it was a very large success and made Fuller a significant amount of money, enough that he could pour it into his self produced passion project, Park Row. Fuller viewed himself as, you know, newspaper man through and through, ink in the blood, and his passion project, which no studio exec. Uh, shared passion for was this film about the lusty two fisted days of the newspaper business in the 1880s on Park Row. And it's interesting looking at it and fixed bayonets side by side because they both use pretty large constructed sets in which the action of the film is largely contained. In the case of Park Row, you have a uh, simulacra of Park Row, the area down around City Hall, which was where uh, the newspapers were clustered at the end of the 19th century. And you really see Fuller enjoying the freedom to range and move about that these sets allow in both the case of fixed bayonets and Park Row, Um, particularly. You know, early on in Park Row, you have Steel Helmets star Gene Evans back as this uh, iconoclastic newspaper man, Phineas Mitchell, and you just see him sort of striding through the streets of New York and you get these very sweeping, emphatic camera movements that go with it. And you have, in seeing that, you have this sense of just professional mastery, this sense of propriety. Mitchell swaggering along the street. You get it too in, inside the bar where uh, he bellies up when you see the mugs of beer sliding along. There's this sense of just real pleasure in observing professional uh, professionals at work. You have some of the same sense of pleasure in observing professionals at work a year later and Pick Up on South Street when you watch Richard Widmark going about his business uh, as a uh, cut purse on the New York City subway system. Um, You also have those same ultra-emphatic camera gestures made possible by this large built environment and the large degree of control that Fuller exercises over the environment. You have them matched to moments of abrupt and very startling violence. Uh, At one point, I believe it's the pedestal of a Benjamin Franklin statue that is used as a blunt battering weapon to uh, dash some scoundrel's brain out. And you also have, as so often in Fuller, uh, certainly it's the case in Steel Helmet uh, with the orphan short round. Fuller's films are full of these little Moppet characters here. It's a newspaper boy called Rusty and, you know, a stars in his eyes, kid who has uh, dreams of nothing but uh, the newspaper business and is in due time crushed by a wagon, one of several moments of quite striking brutality in the thing. And here's, you know, here's another one of the essential fuller paradoxes is you have at one and the same time a tendency towards sentimentality certainly with regards to children but also these moments of extraordinary violence and savagery again you know fuller is nothing if not a welter of weird contradictions and this cheek and jowl proximity of sentimentality verging on the corny and the kind of hard bitten nastiness is, you know, just one more of these.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I uh, I think I I, I I on one of the uh, interviews or documentaries I watched, um, he was talking about how the rusty character was kind of a stand-in for himself, um, mm-hmm. being like a young kid and just he, he tells a wild story about, it, or this is not even really a story. He just talks about how he would just like go to school all day and then just after school he would just go on park row and then you know come back at like three o'clock in the morning and i i just I, this is just it seems unimaginable now i can't imagine what it was like back then uh it's it's yeah it's
2: wild i, I mean i think the the godar refers to uh fuller style as a cinema fist style and there are several films i think underworld usa has it where you get a punch coming straight into the camera you have it too i think in um the naked kiss where constance towers is seemingly you know attacking you in pov at one point and here too there's a scene where um, gene evans is going to nail a plaque onto a grave in potter's field and he's pounding this nail into the plaque the camera seems to you know push in and follow that sort of pounding motion and this again i think is like one of these fuller signatures this this almost like overwhelming bludgeoning force that is that that is that comes through via the camera right you know um Obviously,
1: there's, or not obviously, but I I don't think there's a scene like that in Pick Up on South Street. But uh, there is this kind of, um, there is this kind of just like in your face, like uh, brutality to Pick Up on South Street, which I think is as basic of a choice as it is, I think is probably my favorite uh, oh,
2: Richard, Richard 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 Widmark dragging Richard Kylie down the subway stairs <laughs> by the ankle right his face is bouncing down every subway stair on the you know on the way down yeah that's uh, not not soon forgotten also the like meet cute between Widmark and Gene Peters is candy where she sneaks into his uh waterfront shack and the cracks are one across the jaw (laughs) right
1: i mean even the like uh you know the the quote-unquote love scenes between them the the close-ups of their faces and stuff like uh, is like poised to just like erupt in some violent episode you know and more often than not it does
2: um yeah i mean the, the the love scenes in fuller are always fringed with enormous amount of aggression yeah i mean that's already there in park row uh, and the scenes between gene evans and mary welch as the you know blue stocking uh swell charity hackett who runs the rival newspaper and uh yeah there's always a real like contentiousness and nastiness and a feeling of like a wrestling match in any of the love scenes, probably more than any other film in 40 guns a few years later.
1: Right. I I was thinking about what you said about, um, you know, kind of uh, people on both sides of the aisle getting mad at him. And I think, uh, I I think pick up on South street, you know, that famous line where he's like, uh, you know, you you waving the flag at me.
0: Uh, Yeah.
1: I, I love that line because I can, I can, and just just the the kind of narrative in general, because I can see, um, you know, and obviously there is the behind the scenes story of uh, uh, J. Edgar Hoover saying, you know, this is this is pro communist mm-hmm. propaganda. How can this man not want to serve his country, you know? And then, I, of course, I can imagine, you know, some Verso loft uh, DSA leftists being like, how did he not, you know, full throated full-throatedly embrace uh you know f- uh gay luxury space communism you know it's uh yeah. it's fascinating
2: well i mean uh, among other things uh for fuller at least the fuller pickup on south street communism is essentially gangsterism this is a point that Mulay points to uh as well um it's it's entirely uh the business of uh, low level thugs. And I mean the the pleasure of the one of the pleasures of this movie is just its fantastic feeling for low life, for kind of fringe characters. Right. Not only with Mark who has this wonderful I mean, talking of fringe, like his living space is this shack. Somewhere down in Lower Manhattan, with this you know makeshift beer cooler where he has his six pack uh, in the East River. Um, you have also the great character of uh, Mo, the informer, played by Thelma Ritter, uh, a Thai saleswoman who makes ends meet by uh, by selling secrets to the cops, um, and who and this is another sort of Fularian, uh Theme, and I think we can talk about themes because Fuller is usually writer or co-writer, uh, Mo, who is entirely oriented towards her own death and a terrible fear of being buried in Potter's Field, her only aspiration to have a good funeral. Mm. Um, there's something of that uh, same... Same aspect in the Josiah Davenport character and Park Row. Often I feel guilty in taking such a long time to die. Um, these strangely fatalistic and existentially oriented characters, uh, peculiar to uh, Fuller.
1: Yeah, and there's, but, a, real, uh, yeah. there's, a, oh, there's a real
2: pathos.
1: I mean, uh, in, you know, the final scene of, of Mo. I mean, it's, you know, um, I, I don't know. Say what you will about uh, uh, like about Fuller, but I I don't kind of expect him to like tug on my heartstrings necessarily. Mm-hmm. But that that scene is is almost unbearably sad. Uh, uh when Mo, you know, kind of uh, meets her her demise, you know.
2: Yeah, I'm trying to remember. Did she have a line that's something to the effect of like, if I if I had to have a funeral like that, it'd kill me.
1: Right. Yeah. <laughs>
2: Yeah. I, I maybe misremembering. Yeah, but there, there's yeah, something yeah, there's something like that. Yeah. Yeah. And then in uh, the Steel Helmet, you've got Gene Evans, uh if you die, I'll kill you. Again. <laughs> yeah. you know, further fuller, fuller paradoxes. Now I wanted to jump
1: into uh 40 guns. Now, John, you are a resident uh western fan. I know you uh you were born and raised uh on On Westerns, what did you, we we haven't talked about this uh, uh, separately, but what, what did you think about 40 guns? Because I know it's, I know you're a big Western fan and it's, it's, it's kind of a really unconventional Western. I don't know. What did you think about it, John?
0: Well, I really liked it, but I will say like a lot of his Westerns are unconventional Westerns. Like that's what was so interesting. Like, because I grew up on Westerns and war movies and most of those starred John Wayne and that's why it's interesting going back to Still Helmet. Uh, you reference in your article, Nick, that a, a major studio had apparently wanted John Wayne as Zach and Fuller basically nixed it. He was like, there's no way that's happening. And I think that's interesting because I I, I cannot imagine John Wayne in a Fuller movie. Like with the way he he makes his movies, it is so different on every level from – from a traditional John Wayne movie, uh, so I thought that was really interesting, and especially looking at Forty Guns, like it's not about the the hero's journey that ninety nine percent of John Wayne movies are, and no knock to John Wayne, I'm just using that as an example. Uh, Forty Guns was just such a different experience um, with the with the way he chose to tackle it, and I thought it was great. I mean, it's not it's not my favorite one that I watched from Fuller, but I thought it was just really good. Everything he did with it. I mean, he just fucking shoots her like at the end, like oh yeah, just without even without even like blinking an eye. <laughs> yeah. I, I think the guy said something to the effect of uh "You'll have to shoot her to get to me," and he just shoots her.
1: He's like, <laughs> "All right, <laughs> babe, I'll shoot her."
0: Like, and then he just guns him down. I think because they even reference like you didn't you didn't take him in like you normally would. Like you gunned him down in the street. I think you shot him three times. That's wild. Well, it's a great
2: scene. You know, we, we were talking earlier about uh, you know. Fuller, Fuller apocrypha and Fuller inventions, and I wonder if that John Wayne thing isn't one of them because I don't think John Wayne was in such a place in 1950 to potentially be appearing in a Lippert film. Uh, but also part of the Fuller mythology, and this I think is a little more solid, is that the original ending of Forty Guns, the ending that Fuller campaigned for. Was going to be just that that there would be no reconciliation no revelation that uh right. barbara Stanwyck's character just received a flesh wound it was going to be just that curt and cold and brutal uh this is barry sullivan as one of fuller's seemingly endless stock of characters named griff uh shooting barbara Stanwyck's jessica drummond in order to uh, get the bullet into her uh freakazoid brother brocky played by <laughs> John Erickson. yeah that that tag on the end of it, it, it is kind
1: of strange it's like because barbara Stanwyck yeah. literally gets you know gunned down at point i mean you know point blank range even though it's a flesh wound and then like in the next scene she's just kind of like uh you know kowtowing to him and like apologizing to him for yeah. some reason it's like i thought this about woman attack. was
2: like a big tough badass this whole movie you know and i mean as with the uh, i shot jesse james we you know, talked a little bit about the bathtub scene in there and the uh, right. more than slight homoerotic subtext here absolutely everything is just chock-a-block with Double entendres, single entendres, uh, mostly having to do with firearms. Uh, I'd like to stay around long enough to clean her rifle. Uh, it might go off in your face, so on and so <laughs> forth. Uh, the uh, wonderful ballad, Lady with a Whip. Uh, you know, very heavy SM imagery everywhere. Uh, what amounts to a running joke where every time you see Barbara Stanwyck uh, Barbara Stanwyck's character go anywhere her entire 40-man army goes with her <laughs> uh just, you know crossing the plains like a Mongol horde and I should mention as well this is uh black and white cinemascope and Fuller was never one of those filmmakers who bemoaned the cinemascope frame as a lot of Filmmakers, maybe uh, a generation older than him, did. He was a fantastic CinemaScope composer uh, from Hell in High Water onwards. Hell in High Water uh, submarine picture, somewhat ironically, uh, given that it's uh, full frame. Um, but Adopted enthusiastically and shot some of, I think, the finest wide American films of the 1950s. House of Bamboo, uh, certainly peerless in that regard, um, with these fantastic frames of a dead American soldier splayed out with Mount Fuji in the background and things like this. A wonderful, wonderful composer for the widescreen here in that most like scurrilous of formats, black and white widescreen. And even including some like Sergio Leone-esque eyeline shots, uh, you know, where you have Barry Sullivan's eyes filling the frame completely. Right. In a way that you'll see uh, Clint Eastwood's squint doing in a few years. Yeah. When he's like, uh, there's that
1: scene when he's like marching forward and it, the the cutting on it is really, I mean, yeah, I don't know Eisensteinian exactly or something exactly. it reminded me of Odessa steps or something. it
2: was really uh yeah, as he's stalking down the main street toward Brocky, is just so hypnotized by Barry Sullivan's like cocksure approach, right that he just freezes in his tracks and gets uh like pistol whipped to the ground if memory serves right, all
1: right, so let's let's move into um kind of probably his two most famous movies. And I think in no small part, uh, due to the Criterion releases, which I know is, I mean, myself included, a lot of the reason why anybody, regular people, even know the name of, uh, of Samuel Fuller, which is um, mm-hmm. Shock Corridor and uh, The Naked Kiss. Uh, Shock Corridor for mm-hmm. me is, uh, I mean, I, you know, it's, uh, there, there's this Glenn Kenny uh, where he talks about uh, Uncle Boon Meme. And he talks about like I knew I knew when we got into the cave and Uncle Boon me that like like now we're cooking with gas like now we're having to flirt with using the M Bard masterpiece you know and that's how mm-hmm. I felt with the uh, the insert shots in Shot Corridor where like it'll just be footage of like uh, uh, you know the Mount Fuji footage and the color and the waterfall and all that I was like boy we're really this is really like scraping the top of of expressive power, I think, more so than in his earlier studio work, uh, in my opinion.
2: Um, A lot of that is footage that Fuller shot on a trip down into the Mato Grosso in Brazil for test footage for a movie that was never made, Tigrero, which was later the subject of uh, Mika Kurismaki documentary starring Fuller and Jim Jarmusch from 1994, Tigrero, a film that was never made. So, a lot of like Amazon footage um, from, I would guess, uh, more than 10 years earlier was eventually integrated into the time final like psychedelic interlude uh, that uh, you get in Shock Corridor. And at I think that's so amazing about Shock Corridor, the you know, premise uh, some um, Peter Breck's character goes undercover inside a mental institution. Uh, in order to dig out a story. It's not an incredibly original concept. Uh, There's a Bud Bedeker film from 1948, Behind Locked Doors, made uh, for Poverty Row, Eagle Lion films, that has a somewhat superficially similar premise. But the... Asylum proves itself to be this kind of carnival mirror reflection of American insanity, circa nineteen sixty-three, and it's it's startling to me that the, the movie is released like two months before the Kennedy assassination in September of sixty-three, hmm. and all of the all of the like boiling psychic energy that's going to kind of explode through the decade to come, all of that kind of free floating violence and racial animus, all of this stuff, it's very much there in shock corridor, right? Even, and, and and it even seems like oddly prophetic in it's like psychedelia, right? (laughs) It's like, you know, this, this proto psychedelic interlude um, but you know all of all of that just under the surface roiling uh, kind of violent energy that you know in many people's imagination many people's experience I suppose kind of defines America in the 60s it's all there in shock corridor I would say also um, did, did did you guys have the occasion to see underworld USA
0: oh yes yeah, yes yeah, I saw that
2: Yeah, and I mean that. I think these have kind of these films of the early '60s: Underworld USA, Shock Corridor, The Naked Kiss. um, Not to say that there isn't um, a heavy dose of derangement evident in earlier Fuller films, but you really break out into full-blown psychopathy in these three. And, you know, in the case of Underworld USA, your ostensible hero, played by Cliff Roberts and Tali Devlin, is a straight-up stone-cold fucking monomaniacal maniac who is driven only by a pathological thirst for revenge. And the only thing that redeems him is that the world around him is so completely fallen and so irretrievably corrupt that in this situation, perhaps the only like uh hero that can, uh, that can cut through this is a total psychopath. And, um, Moulet's piece about Fuller, written a couple years earlier, he titles uh, one of the sections "We Need Madmen," and he's talking about Fuller. But you know, Fuller seems to be proposing in Underworld USA, uh, you need a psychopath in order to, uh, in order to bring down this completely and comprehensively corrupt universe in which. Instead of the communist gangster as a pickup on South Street, we now have gangsters as gray flannel suit, almost Madison Avenue types and glass box high rises. Um, And in this like, you know, completely corrupted world, only, you know, a lunatic can play the role of hero. Then when we arrive at Shock Corridor, the world itself has ceased to exist, or at least it just reflected in the microcosm of the nuthouse where, um, you have several instances of people. There's a, um, young man. Uh, one of the characters is, uh, identified as a student at a segregated southern university, black student at a segregated southern university, has gone completely nuts and now imagines himself as a KKK member. You have a nuclear physicist who's regressed to the uh, uh, age of six years old uh, with the mind of a child um, and everything is absolutely topsy-turvy. And then again, this microcosm of the booby hatch, you see the larger madness of the country as a whole, as Fuller perceives it uh, in early 1963.
0: Yeah. With, and, with, uh, well, just real quick. I want to say with underworld USA, it was so weird because it's a t- like, it's a, like a typical gangster pick. Guy wants revenge, you know, death of parent, whatever. But like, he like you said he was a psycho he was fucking insane oh. like so yeah. it made it really hard to be like well yeah i want to root for this guy who's like manipulating and destroying everything you know become the psycho to catch the psycho however you want to see it like it was just such a very interesting dynamic because it it was um I ju- you just weren't in a situation to really root for anybody, so to speak. So it was just I don't know. It, it he once again it was a it was a different take that somehow only a storyteller like Fuller can bring the light.
2: Well, I, I think you know in the course of whatever it is, six seven years between Pickup on South Street and Underworld USA, there are movies that I you know have a great deal in common, but with Tolly Devlin, the Cliff Robertson character, you've taken. The already rather difficult pill to swallow that is Widmark and Pickup on South Street, and you've gone just that much further. You've gotten someone who's just that much tougher, just that much, uh, you know, devoid of any of the milk of human kindness, and you know, this 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 constant low boil that Fuller's filmography is on, and and this constant looming psychopathy really just breaks out into full 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 blown uh like carnivalesque lunacy in you know again underworld usa shock corridor and the naked kiss the naked kiss which takes place largely well entirely really in a what initially appears to be an attractive even idealized small town setting where a reformed prostitute played by constant towers comes in to start anew and in the course of the film discovers this environment which she had initially thought that she had to reform herself to be worthy of is so far beyond in terms of corruption and depravity anything that she's known in the honest life of a sex worker that you know it ends with a just total disgusted rejection of uh, all propriety and the appearances of middle-class morality as represented by small-town America, which in fact hide uh, corruption and monstrous behavior.
1: Yeah. I feel like it's such a cliche to say that, you know, a movie is ahead of its time or whatever, but I was just so struck by, and you, you talked a little bit about it with Shot corridor of like it being a microcosm of like the sixties and, you know, 1963, I mean, the sixties haven't even really started yet. Like, I mean, the Beatles hadn't, you know, like the Beatles hadn't released an American album at that point. Like, like what we think of as the sixties, like didn't even really exist. And, you know, the shot corridor is kind of attuned to these, um, you know, really, uh, I guess, uh, uh, subaltern like uh, um, social realities that maybe weren't being expressed in like mainstream movies. And I think the same thing, I thought the same thing with um, The Naked Kiss, where I was like, this is. This is every bit as sort of uh, critical of you know, like you said, small town American mid century values as something like Mad Men, and yet it is made like you know a couple years later than the early Mad Men seasons, you know, are set. No.
2: I I don't want to suggest that. You know, Sam Fuller is the first person to, you know, pull back the mask on uh middle sure, sure. class propriety and discover that uh, you know, something was rotten in the small town. I mean, if you watch like Manelli's Some Came Running from some years before, uh it really any number of films books, etc, had addressed this topic still in all, there is a significant amount of difference between uh pointing out small town hypocrisies and the sort of patent place uh Peyton place uh, bits of double dealing and cheating and you know all of these uh, little moral brooches or something like the Naked kiss which presents the character of JL Grant played by Michael Dante the sort of leading citizen uh of this small town and eventually unmasks him as a straight up predatory fucking pedophile who is pumping money into charity organizations in order to get himself free access to crippled children oh, uh jesus man we're 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 a Far distance from you know the usual sort of you know fishmonger's wife uh, gossip here. This is really, really, incredibly bleak stuff in the Naked Kiss.
0: Right. Um, I, I going back to shot quarter real quick. Um, Peter Breck deserved something for that performance. I don't know if he won anything, but his scream alone was amazing it was just it was such a bizarre movie but he just was so committed to that performance it, it made that movie like next level yeah he
1: he has that kind of monomaniacal thing that a lot of those fuller protagonists do where they're like uh even the the main character of uh of park row like of just like i'm gonna do the thing and nobody's gonna fucking stop me you know it's wild
0: and and with uh with the naked kiss like Jacob and I uh, text about this uh, when I was watching it I, the first 45 minutes or so I was like well this movie's interesting but like it's definitely far from the best at that point I'd watched about seven or eight fuller movies and um and then around the hour mark when you get the revelation of what's going on it just goes next level and you're like what the fuck is he doing in this movie (laughs) um and that scene exchange the close-up on the eyes the way he contorts his face just just moving the camera from her face to his face as like the terror settles in it's it's remarkable like it's it's just mind-blowing
2: yeah i mean talking about the level of performance uh and some of the sometimes questionable and sometimes questionable in the most, uh, appealing of ways. Um, I'd be remiss not to mention my, per, perhaps my favorite Fuller performance, which is Rod Steiger in, uh, 1957's Run of the Arrow. Uh, Fuller's, Fuller's, uh, kind of, dances with wolves avant dances with wolves with steiger speaking this bizarre (laughs) irish southern brogue throughout um and very much in that like gene evans uh genotype that fuller liked these kind of lumpy you know mashed potato type of guys fuller said of his decision to cast steiger uh He's got a sour face and a fat ass. And he meant that as a compliment. That is the kind of, uh, the kind of actor that Fuller gravitated towards. Yeah. That, that uh, yeah. Me and John
1: had talked about run of the arrow. It's such a strange movie. Like, I don't like, I don't know. There's in in a, in a filmography full of, you know, kind of strange uh, kind of shocking stuff. I, I, I just was not prepared for a movie about an Irish Confederate soldier who becomes part of a native American tribe. Like it was just, uh, I, I don't know. It was, it was just definitely a wild choice, you know?
0: Yeah, it it really was. It was a wild movie. Like I'm just and then like it's funny you bring up his accent because I believe I even texted this to you Jacob. I said this guy's voice is driving me insane. Um <laughs> right. it was just such a bizarre way of speaking. Uh yeah, I don't know. I I like your comparison to like Dances with the Wolves kind of thing because it definitely did have that vibe.
1: It's essentially the same plot, I feel like, right?
2: Well, I mean, you know, uh, we're dealing with a Union man and dances with wolves, whereas Omira joins the Sioux just so he can continue carrying on warfare against the United States. Uh, so, you know, deep uh, is his disgust with the Southern surrender. But I mean, I would just say, like, with regards to that extremely bizarre choice that Steiger makes, which I, you know, could not endorse more. Um, It's symbolic, I think, of the fact that in a way that has nothing to do with how we now talk about identity politics, Fuller is somebody who is very concerned with exactly that. And in the character of O'Meara, the Steiger character, you have somebody who has to ultimately unsuccessfully like untangle this Gordian knot of confused identities Irishman, t- Southerner, Sioux, or at least an attempted Sioux. And this is something that you find just throughout Fuller in China Gate. Uh, Gene Berry's the racist Korean War veteran with the French forces fighting the Viet Minh. He's abandoned his son with a mixed race Angie Dickinson, who has, of course, the very Fullerian name, Lucky Legs. Uh, Fuller's women. Uh, generally have kind of burlesque-esque names um and uh gene berry coming up against nat king cole you have the american drama of race played out against this indo-chinese background meanwhile you've got hungarians and french wandering around it's always this uh you know sort of tower of Babel collection of identities and ethics that are in this you know just fantastic confused muddle and part of this i think is why fuller is so often taken for so many different things because he flings himself kind of wholeheartedly into a very wide variety of uh identities there's another moulet line on fuller he pretends to adopt all points of view and that's what makes his humor sublime. Um, you just have these you know, incredibly sort of prismatic collections of types, which is you know very representative, I think, of Fuller's background. The fact that the man is a New Yorker who came up in the city in the 1920s and 30s when it was, you know, as it is today, uh, a complete carnival of different types uh, full of incoming immigrants. And this is, you know, this is Fuller's lived experience, I think, as a, a New Yorker from this period. And this is also, I think, very much how Fuller views history, particularly American history, the history with which he's most concerned is that it is this Demo- democratic rabble, this, uh, this. Constant jostling argument, running argument going on. And, uh, you know, this is very much reflected, I think in the films. And sometimes there is, as is the case in uh, steel helmet, a sort of suggestion of better times ahead or a suggestion that uh we're all in this thing together sometimes as in run of the arrow uh there is no resolution the final title card reading the end of this story can only be written by you and sometimes (laughs) as in shock corridor it just turns into a powder keg right yeah all the uh, you know the melting pot
1: of all the fuller characters including like basically a precursor to like Rachel Dolezal essentially. Um yeah. But uh I, I do uh we we need to wrap up uh but I do want to quickly um unfortunately these are the last chronologically but definitely not the least of his works uh talk a little bit about uh the big red one and White Dog. Um White Dog famously <laughs> um never really released which uh that's gonna that's gonna be a tough uh uh thing to go through as a filmmaker and i know john you were a big uh, you you really enjoyed the big red one this i feel like this harkens back to your your childhood filled with war movies am i right
0: yes and i pretty much will watch lee marvin in anything but god it was it was so good it was so unique with the way that that he approached everything and it was such a diff. it had such a different feel From from like traditional war movies, especially like ones I watched growing up. Yeah, it was just it was something else. Even Mark Hamill turned in a good performance like it was uh, was a very unique movie. And this is the one if I'm not mistaken, that was kind of uh, an autobiography. And unfortunately had to get cut down by like half or something. Is that the story with this movie?
1: yeah we had to watch the truncated version of it unfortunately because the we, we didn't have access to the uh the full director's cut but uh nick do you happen to know the uh the differences between those i i know i heard there were substantial
2: i, I, it I, I saw it i believe it was new york film festival sometime in the mid-aughts i saw the first rollout or at least the first new york rollout for that director's cut mm. um and I don't, and I don't believe I've ever seen the shorter version. I'll say though, I you know there are things I like in the big red one. It, it is not what I like best in Fuller, in part because everything you know, this is a dream project. This is a film that he'd wanted to make for ages and ages, a dream deferred finally come true with just the budget that he wanted. Um, and with a you know fairly stacked cast and an opportunity after a significant amount of time uh, spent uh, spent away from the limelight to come back in a big way And for all of that, I kind of I have so much more affection for the more, Disadvantageous and marred projects mm. than I do for the big red one. Um, part of it again, you know, is I, I suppose the fuller of uh, pickup on South Street who has such a like taste for the fringe, I feel like operates at the highest level. Uh, when the situation is least advantageous, when you're shooting 10 days in Griffith Park for Korea rather than having you know, all the time you need. Uh, it's been, it's been quite a while and I certainly don't dismiss the movie out of hand, but, uh, I think like the fuller of dead pigeon on Beethoven street is, uh, a little bit, uh, closer to my heart, but I mean, even these latter projects, this is probably another two hours. So.
1: Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I know, uh, speaking for myself, and I think it's the same with you, John, we, uh, we definitely uh, didn't uh, go beyond, or at least I personally didn't go beyond White Dog, and I even missed uh, some stuff in the in the fifties just because of unavailability. Or uh, treat um, yourself. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um,
0: um, I will say just real quick before we wrap up the story, uh, going back to Fuller telling stories that may or may not be true. Uh, Park Row is by far my favorite Fuller movie. I think it's, it's, I'm going to watch that again. I may watch it again this weekend. I fucking loved everything about it, but the story has it. He couldn't get financing for it. And then Nick, I'm not sure if you've heard the story, but he had $200,000 in his bank account and he spent 199,000 on it. And he used the remaining thousand to buy enough cigars and vodka to get through filming it. <laughs> and I don't know whether that's true, but honestly, I don't really know if I care because it just sounds so badass.
2: <laughs> no, no, he went. He went out. Of, he went out of pocket on this. I think I mentioned this, but Steel Helmet made quite a bit of money for a no-budget movie, and I think Fuller was able to take quite a bit of that home because he had a pretty advantageous uh, setup with uh, Lippert and sunk it all on uh, Park Row.
0: Man, I'm sure glad he did because that movie was something else. It, it was electric from from the opening scene and uh and everything yes it's by far my favorite fuller movie
1: yeah there are worse things to uh to spend your money on i think um what about white dog am i the only one who watched white dog I, it's definitely not available anywhere and i think everybody likes to pretend that it doesn't exist but uh
2: boy what, what, a, what a strange I, I, no, movie. I, 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 i've seen it but uh i I have not seen it in a long time and I don't feel that I could uh, discourse on it with any intelligence whatsoever.
0: Yeah. I tried watching it, got like 15 minutes into it. And unfortunately the source at which I was streaming it, uh, was not being cooperative, but, uh, I will watch it at some point. I know you can buy the DVD on Criterion for like 20 bucks or something. So that's where, I mean, I might just do that so I can watch it.
1: Yeah. It's a weird ass movie, but well, Nick, we've gone long enough. Um, Nick Pinkerton, thank you so much uh, for joining us on our uh, little Sam Fuller journey, uh, and also thanks for uh, giving us maybe some reason to hope for the uh, the future of cinema despite uh, despite these bleak times.
0: Yeah, Nick, I really appreciate you coming on, and uh, we appreciate you taking the time. And uh, you're welcome back anytime. And, and guys, make sure uh, we'll put some links in the show notes, but check out his Substack. Um, any of the stuff he's written, uh, film content, all that, uh, we'll definitely post some sources in there. Nick, do you have anything you want to, you want to talk about other than your Substack?
2: Oh man, no, I, am uh, just in the usual, uh, usual grind, but, uh, it's a, it's a nonstop erotic cabaret over at, uh, com. <laughs> Stop on by, we'll be picking and grinning. <laughs>
0: Okay. Well, uh, nobody else has anything to add. We'll wrap it up. Nick, once again, thank you very much for stopping by and giving us this time and, uh, and talking about cinema a little bit and Sam Fuller, especially.